Florida with the Hurricane Ian, I think is what they called it, and that is uh, significant enough. There's uh, huge relief elements going on there, and that'll take not only days and weeks, but probably months. But you have the war in Ukraine, where Russia is trying to annex their own little park on the side of Russia and trying to eliminate them. Uh, it was interesting to hear how the Ukraine is uh, fighting back and reclaiming certain cities and dealing with things, but um, those things disturb us because they're so much out of our control and they make us feel so vulnerable that we really don't know how to respond to it. Uh, we might be able to give some monies to relief efforts, we may be able to participate in some fashion, but these things seem so overwhelming that it is hard for us to get our bearings to know exactly what to do. Uh, we can talk a lot about it, but it's a whole different thing to decide how do we step into those things. Well, one of the things that often goes very unaware in our own life is this, the battles that go on not only in our life but around us. And there's an aspect of what Jesus is doing in this text in Mark chapter 3 that is a good reminder to us of the reality of the spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle that goes on in our world and especially in our lives as children of God. And so we want to take this text, starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, and, and get a short glimpse of the reality of the things that both Jesus and the scribes are talking about uh, to help anchor us into even a greater battle in our lives and in our global, econ uh, global world that we often ignore, especially in Western civilization. Uh, we have ignored the reality of the spiritual realm in lots of ways, and things like science and personal subjectivism has become the new authority. But when, when you're dealing with realities that are way bigger than we are, uh, my subjective sense of withdrawal or hiding from it isn't gonna solve the problem. And so as we step into this, Mark chapter three, uh, it begins this way. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, being Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of the demons, he casts out demons. And he, Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the king, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has, uh, will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Now these are pretty sobering terms. This is probably one of the highlights, as it were, or the pinnacles of Jesus' conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, it is pretty obvious from this, and I'll, I'll label it this way, what I call the paganism of the scribes, which is quite shocking to even put that label to it because the problem is, is these guys are supposed to be the religious leaders. They have a huge history and tradition that goes all the way back to Abraham that says we have this legacy with the true God of the universe. And yet when Jesus is standing in front of them, they are so enmeshed in their own legalities and their own rules and their own sense of religion that they don't see God standing right in front of them. 
The very God that they claim to worship in the Old Testament, his son is standing in front of them, and yet they are vehement about attacking his presence because he threatens their space. And it's, it's amazing that these people can come to these kinds of conclusions. Uh, we were uh, listening to a series in our community group called The, the Road to Truth, and uh, in there they're talking about the whole idea of um, evolution and some of those kinds of things, which the more you look at things like evolution, uh, it gets passed on from one group to the next with, I believe, not a lot of critical thinking, and yet uh, people believe that something came out of nothing. And, and, and it's the, the idea of some of this is a struggle because people become so used to look, thinking a particular way that even the right way doesn't seem to jar them. And this is exactly what we have with Jesus, except that it comes with a lot more than just sort of their paganism. It comes with a tremendous amount of animosity. But this interaction between the scribes and Jesus does point out one thing for us, that there is a whole dimension of reality that is unseen to the human eye for the most part, that about spiritual beings that inhabit and indwell this global space that we are in, and there's a battle going on. We, uh, this is not just making it up. Jesus isn't just accommodating these particular scribes out of cultural myths that they've created just to help scare people into religious behavior. That they are going to talk about Beelzebul, which happens to be uh, um, probably an ethnic god that goes all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 1 where uh, Hazai fell through the lattice in his upper chamber and injured himself so badly that he sent messengers to go and inquire of the god of Beelzebul to find out if he would survive this fall. And uh, God talks to Elijah and he runs to him and he sends this message to him. He's kind of like, what's wrong with you? Is there no god of Israel that you have to go and, and, and appeal to this pagan god? I mean, why, why won't you come to the god of, who belong, that you belong to? Why would you appeal to this Beelzebul? And it's amazing that what we need to realize is that we live in a world where people have created all kinds of gods and they appeal and seek them out, but the God who's created everything is the one who gets ignored. And at the heart of this spiritual battle is the God who created us is now seeking to redeem and, and reconcile broken human beings back into relationship with him so that we can be part of his family, and yet at the same time we're seeking answers in all the wrong places. And so at the, the, the first thing that strikes me about this is that they're just not talking fairy tales or cultural myths, but they are stepping into and talking about a reality that we often goes very unseen. I've mentioned Ephesians chapter six. Paul makes the same reference. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, other human beings. That's not our primary struggle, even though some of us have some really nasty fights with one another but we find against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so one of the things that we are faced with is that the scribes come and charge Jesus basically with three things. First of all, that he is possessed and controlled by this, this cultural god, Beelzebul, that is a reference all the way back to the Old Testament, but it's, it's, a, it's a God created, created out of a certain culture. And it's a God that they would appease in lots of different ways. But it wasn't the God of Israel. It was a foreign God. And so they basically are saying, 
in an attempt to discredit Jesus, well, he's all this power that he's demonstrating and healing people and doing all these amazing, powerful, miraculous things. He's doing it out of the power of this cultural God. But they also go on and say that he is also possessed by the prince of demons. I mean, these guys aren't holding anything back. I mean, they're saying this to Jesus himself, which sounds astonishing. And then you'll notice in verse 30, which obviously is at the end of the text, that there's another reference there to say that he was doing this based on an unclean spirit that dwelt in him. Now obviously we understand the character and the presence of Jesus in such a way that this is literally impossible. But it's, it's something that we're not really used to thinking about. Our Western culture has created science and physics and other things as the ultimate authority about how things happen and how they work. And so we sort of relegate the idea of spirits and demons and unclean spirits to the third world countries where they're too ignorant to really understand the full nature of what science and medicine and everything else can deal with. You know, I, I, I posit that because the, the reality is in spite of all of our technology and all of our science and all of our sophistication, we still have a lot of human problems. I mean, we haven't quite eliminated all the dysfunction in people's lives. We haven't eliminated the diseases. We haven't got enough shots and insulin and inoculations and vaccines to cure people of all the, the afflictions that they tend to have. And, and, and so we just sort of dismiss it as being physical or biological. But the reality is, is that what Jesus and them are talking about, I believe, is just as a real issue today in our world as it is back then. Now, we may not see it exactly the same way, but I don't know. If I look at my world, I look at it as, and I don't care what area you want to take it in, but our whole sense of uh, Western culture feels like it's sort of disintegrating. Our sense of morality is totally relativistic. There's no more such thing as absolutes. And what we discover in this whole process is that we face a tidal flood, almost as it were a hurricane of values and beliefs in our world that's literally overwhelming to us. They, they don't value who God is. Things like spirits and demons and Satan become the tales of children's fairy tale books. They're not the reality of what we're dealing with, and yet the corruption that is in our cultures and in our global economy is astounding. The reality of people having a sense of hopelessness because they can't understand the purpose and the direction of their life is overwhelming. The, the rate of suicides and broken marriages and corruption that goes into the political and economic worlds is staggering. And, and you can't just rub that off to them being uneducated or ignorant. I mean, the, the problem is, is that knowledge tends to make us arrogant, as 1 Corinthians 8 says, and it seems like the more technologically advanced and the more brilliant we seem to be, it just gives us more creative, brilliant ways to sin and, and corrupt each other. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't a lot of good things that have happened in our world. There's tremendous ways that we can help feed people, and medicine has done a lot of things. But I, I, I'm going to say that science and medicine and technology isn't the final authority on reality. 
And there's a lot that goes on in people's lives that have nothing to do with whether they have lack of food or whether they have a, a good growing up experience, that there is a whole demonic world and there's a whole, uh, as it were, darkness in our, in our global economy that, that influences the values and, and the beliefs and the priorities of people. The Bible's pretty clear that there's a, a spirit within the world itself and it doesn't need Satan's help where Romans told us that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness because we won't embrace the truth about the reality of God. And so then we're left to flounder in our own dysfunction and figuring out our own morality. And all of this becomes toppled by the idea of the lusts of the flesh, the, the brokenness and the curse that's placed on human beings and upon this earth that we struggle with in our own brokenness. And again, we don't need anybody else's help to understand our own fragile sense of self-worth and the lust of the flesh and the brokenness of humanity. We all experience the weight of all that that looks like. But on top of all that, there's this personal enemy, this, this created angel, I believe, that God created that fell and rebelled against God that's called Satan. And he has a horde of angels now called demons that are trying to influence and affect the course of events in our individual lives and in our global community. And yet we tend to brush that off as not being real. It's hard because unless we see, uh, we've seen too many movies where people's heads spin around 16 times because that's what the movie wants and it creates horror and fear. But that's not the reality of how often this works. And so the, the, fer- the scribes are becoming so desperate that they're coming to Jesus in what I call their paganism, and they're literally expressing this accusation against Jesus that of all the good and the miraculous things that Jesus are doing, he gets his power from Satan himself. I, uh, and so they're on full attack. You do know this happens today, not quite in the same way it happens with Jesus, but in a similar sense. I mean, we went through COVID and everything else, and instead of being love, warm, and gentle, and kind, and all that kind of stuff, there are lots of Christians in lots of churches that just went crazy on all sides of the fence, and people were making accusations. I was talking with a young new pastor in our network here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, while I'm not comparing him to Jesus, I want you to know that there's some things that take place that make you sort of pause and think what's going on. And his basic statement was this. Uh, this young pastor had started a series in the book of Ephesians and was preaching through Ephesians. And uh, one per- couple, uh, because now that the previous pastor's gone, who was there for 20-some years, um, left, now the new pastor's in, everybody wants to kind of get his attention with the things that are really on their heart. And so some people are leaving because of whatever reasons, not necessarily biblical reasons. There's more people coming, but one couple was very irate with him and and literally on a Sunday morning caught him afterwards and was red-faced and pointing a finger at him. And this is the comment that he made to him. Calvinism is a tool used by Satan to divide the church. Pastor is reformed in his theology and our concern is in him using the pulpit to push a Calvinistic agenda because he chose to preach from Ephesians. What he's saying is, what he told the other part that I didn't put in there is that this person said, the book of Ephesians is a Calvinistic book and you're just using it to divide the church. 
I'm kind of like, I, I, I sit back and I go, I wonder if people actually listen to what comes out of their mouth. I mean, I don't use the word stupid very often, but that has got to be the stupidest comment I've ever heard. You can't preach from the book of Ephesians because it's a Calvinistic book? Are you seriously kidding me? But this is what happens when people get frustrated and anger. I'll, I'll call it their paganism starts to leak out because they feel like they're losing control. They're, they're losing the comfort and security of, of what they used to know. And the best targets are the leaders like Jesus or pastors or other individuals who are leading ministries. And they resort to saying things out of tremendous amount of pain and hurt and animosity by saying, literally, you're not biblical, you're not spiritual, you're evil, you're dividing the church because you're preaching out of the book of Ephesians. Now, obviously, it's kind of like, man, that'd be an interesting conversation. You do know that, like, Ephesians is, like, the Bible, and it, like, is supposed to have come from God, like, the, the Spirit of God brought it to us. But they're not listening. They're not interested in listening. They just have their own personal agendas. And while I wouldn't call that person possessed, I'm kind of like, there's got to be some kind of spiritual influence in their life that is affecting the way they're thinking to come up with something this outrageous. And you and I both know that in the context of life, Christians can get pretty hostile if they want to. And so Jesus ends up responding to this by raising, in a sense, of rhetorical questions that even the scribes should be able to figure out, although I'm not sure they do. And his comment is simply this. What, Satan is casting out Satan? Are you kidding me? I mean, even Satan isn't that stupid. If he casts out himself and he's working against himself, his kingdom's gonna fall. I mean, it's a sense of universal principle. You know that, and you've probably seen it in certain circumstances. I mean, that's why marriages disintegrate and people get divorced. It's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason, but the part of the reason for that is because it, it becomes sort of a household that's divided against itself. And when people start picking sides in marriage and start making accusations, the accusations can be out of this world And it doesn't matter what the other person says, it's like, this is the way it is, I don't care what you say, and it ends up disintegrating and falling apart and literally being destroyed because they're divided against themselves. We see the same thing in churches, when people start picking up sides and start turning on one another because there's something seems to be more important than the gospel and the person of Jesus that has to be promoted. And Satan will do everything that he can to destroy your family. He'll do everything he can to destroy your marriage. He'll do everything he can to destroy a local body of believers by getting them distracted or sidetracked or anything other than the gospel. And so Jesus makes a profound statement that I think we need to take note of. It's not just in the spiritual world, it's in any one of our worlds, and that is, if, if we're divided against ourselves, we're going to fail. And so at the heart of the Christian life is this reality that the, the one single thing that matters more than anything else is Christ and living for him. 
is understanding the nature of the gospel that every one of us is broken. And frankly, I don't care what your theology is. When we get to heaven, God's is going to fix yours as well as he's fixing mine. I don't know anybody who's got a market on it. I know lots of people who think they've got a corner on the market of understanding things like theology and everything else and sanctification and all those kinds of things. When we get to heaven, God will fix everybody's thinking so that it aligns with what he thinks, not with what we think. We always have to sort of, in a sense, hold truth pretty loosely so that we're open to the Spirit of God teaching us what righteousness is rather than just promoting our own sense of righteousness. But we have to be, we can't be naive and unaware of the fact that Satan and demons exist and they are going to do everything they can to get into your life and into your heart and mess with your mind and mess around with your belief system so that you will suddenly stop seeking after the God of Israel, the Lord Jesus himself, and will start seeking answers from other things that go on because we think that's the best way to handle it. Now, there's nothing wrong with learning from the wisdom of others unless it exempts the wisdom of God's word. Then Jesus finishes this off in a really unique sense, is that he, in the midst of all this conflict and this battle that's going on in this text, he makes some promises. He makes some promises that are really pretty important for us to take a note of. And as you look through the text, you will discover that he says, in verse 28, truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, that's not an automatic statement like everybody who lives, they're gonna be forgiven no matter what they do or whatever. I mean, the whole nature of the gospel for Jesus was calling Israel to repent and believe in the gospel, which means we can't fix this on our own. We can't get in a right relationship with God on our own. We can't do enough good things for God to go, good, I'm glad to welcome you back. The only means by which God is given to us to be right with him is the person and the work of Christ, that he was the only sufficient and perfect sacrifice who allowed himself to be brutalized and murdered on a cross, only to rise on the third day so that all those who surrender to God through faith in the work of Christ to forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness and to be adopted into the family of God and removed from his wrath, that's when we belong to God. And that's the only means that God has given to us that, that we can do it, unless you can live a perfect life, and I already know what the answer is to that. And so my appeal to you this morning is, do you really know Jesus as your personal savior? Have you really come to that point in your life where it's not everybody else's fault, I'm the only one who knows how to do these things right, but that, that you realize your own brokenness and your own sin and the old, your own dysfunction of your own heart, that's what keeps you from relationship with God. And that you have taken the step to bow the knee before the cross of Christ and say that I recognize you died in my place for my sin. And then while I know I deserve that judgment, God, I need you to forgive me because of the work of your son and I need you to teach me a new way to live, a new way to think. I need to adopt your belief system in my life because until we figure that out, we're gonna spend our whole life struggling in a battle that we can't win. 
except for the indwelling presence of his spirit. Jesus used this little parable where he talks about, unless somebody comes in and talks about the strong man, which in this text I believe refers to Satan, he's the strong man who holds humanity prisoner, for lack of better terms. And what Jesus is saying is that unless someone comes in and and conquers the strong man, there's no way to plunder the house. There's no way to set, take any of the objects to set people free. Remember when, uh, if you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see all kinds of wars and things that David was in, and they would conquer a nation, and they would set up house, and their people were there, and when the army went off, if they went off at the wrong time and another army came in, they would conquer and burn the city, and they'd take all their, their, their wives and their kids and take them prisoners so that they would be their slaves. David had an incident like that, if you read in Samuel and other sections. So what did David do? He gathered his guys up, marched them out there, and won them back. They destroyed the enemy and recovered all their possessions and the people and their families. That's literally like Jesus is talking about here, is that unless someone's coming in who's stronger than the strong man and binds him, then no one can get set free. And Jesus is basically saying, he's he's the stronger of the strong men. He's the only one that can come in and destroy the works of the devil. And that's, we see that in other places. 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is the god of this world. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are unbelievers. To keep them, I'm sorry, who are perishing, in the case the god of this world has blinded their minds, the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you go to another pass, 1 John chapter 3, whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, we could go on and on about passages where Christ's purpose was to come and destroy and bind the strong man, Satan, so that he might be able to set those who have been held captive by sin and by his influence. And so it is only by the power of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 says the same thing. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, being Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I mean, that's the condition of all humanity, is Satan is a strong man. He holds us prisoner, as it were. And we are bound by our own sin on top of it. And the only way to be set free is Christ. And on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. He destroyed the power of Satan so that now individuals can be redeemed and reconciled back to God. But there's another sense of promise that he makes here as well, which often gets our attention. The idea is not that things can be forgiven, but there's one thing that can't be forgiven. By the way, I, want, I, I do want to try to emphasize before I step into that, that the reality that Jesus says, notice in the text he talks about whatever blasphemies people utter. That's probably one of the strongest words to talk about disregard and, and disrespect for God. There's things like sacrilege 
You know, if you go, grew up in a probably a Catholic environment when you were growing up, that would generally and historically be considered if you went, someone went in and robbed the church of some of their stuff, that would be called sacrilege, the idea of theft. But the idea of blaspheming is saying something against God or uttering things against God or things that are sacred. Now, you and I will often sort of say, is there anybody in this world that can't be saved? You know, we pick on typical illustrations like Adolf Hitler. Could he ever be saved? We, well, most of us go, we hope not. But Jesus is basically saying that no matter what the blasphemies, no matter how deep and wide the sin is of people, because of who he is, he can forgive everyone of anything. That doesn't seem fair to most of us because we go, well, I've tried to live a pretty squeaky clean life even before I came to Christ. I don't have some of the same garbage and clutter that other people have. Is that really fair? Well, it just shows the naivete of our own thinking in relationship to the sacrifice of Christ. But Jesus does put one condition on the table here and basically says, listen, there's one situation in which a person cannot be forgiven, and that is blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of commentaries, a lot of different stuff going on about this particular text, and I want to suggest to you that, that we need to simplify it, at least in our thinking. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is working through Jesus to perform miracles and to do the things that he was doing. So even the blasphemies against Jesus said could be forgiven if they were willing to surrender to the work of the Spirit of God to reveal who Jesus is. The problem with the scribes in their own paganisms is, hey, I'm okay the way we are. We have our own religion. We don't need you. And this whole sense of rejecting the clear working of the Spirit of God to reveal the person of Christ, and they still reject it and reject him, indicates that they will never be forgiven their sins because the only way they can be forgiven is if the Spirit of God brings about faith the results, as it were, in regeneration and new life and reconciliation with God. I, I think it's too problematic for us to say, well, if we say this against the Holy Spirit or we say this against the Holy Spirit or this particular thing, then we create our own sense of legalism. But the point is, is that if someone rejects the clear working of the Spirit of God to reveal the person of Jesus to who, for who he really is, and people reject it, they can't be saved. So one of the things we have to remember is that if you think you can get to heaven by not going through Jesus or not surrendering your life to the gospel, to what he, is, he did for you on the cross, you're never going to get there. And it's a promise, literally, that Jesus makes here. You can't earn your way to heaven. You will never be good enough, even though that's the trumpeting call of our culture. We're basically good. We have value because we're created in the image of God, but there is no one who is good, no one who understands, no one who seeks after, good, after God, and no one who will be able to do anything based on their own merits in any way, shape, or form that will ever be accepted by God. Let me ask you this. You ever felt like you've been in a spiritual battle in life? Sometimes our worst weeks have very good reasons for them. 
Sometimes Satan is trying to do everything he can to destroy your sense of hope. Sometimes he's doing everything he possibly can to crush your sense of faith in Jesus. He tries to convince you that if God really loved you, he would make life easier than the way it is. Sometimes we have to look back and go, well, you know, if I wasn't such a knucklehead, then life would be a whole lot easier. That might be where I start, because I keep making choices that doesn't need Satan's help, doesn't need anybody else's help. I can't blame it on my parents, and I can't blame it on my spouse. I just keep making stupid decisions, and this is why life is really rough. But on the other hand, Satan wants to go after your heart and mind. And he'll use anything in life. He'll use your spouse, he'll use your circumstances, he'll use your irrational boss, the person that you work beside, the student that you have to work with that drives you nuts. Or maybe he just keeps grinding on your own sense of bad self-image, like I'm not worth anything. And he wants to just crush you into the ground to say, you're... God may have died for everybody, but he certainly didn't die for you because you keep failing, your life is screwed up. How could God possibly, ever possibly forgive you? And maybe today's the day that you need to sort of get before God's throne of grace and say, God, I've become my own worst enemy because I've been buying into so many lies and deceptions from Satan that he's messed me up thoroughly. And I need your help to give me hope to increase my faith, to get me back in alignment with you so that I am not in this losing battle because I'm doing it all by myself. Because even in the most dire circumstances, God gives hope because of his indwelling spirit and because we're children of God if you've surrendered to faith in Jesus Christ and accepted the gospel. If you haven't, come and talk to us, because this is what we're all about, is helping people find hope and encouragement in the midst of a world that is disintegrating. We can learn to stand, not on our own two feet, but on the foundation of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we, you know, continue to come to you Because when we look around at floods and famines, wars and rumors of wars, Father, we know that we are working ourselves quickly to the end of times. We're, on top of all that, we are in a spiritual battle for our life. Oh, we understand the security and the the permanence of our relationship if we've surrendered to the gospel and we've asked Christ to come into our life and forgive us our sin. We know that we're children of God, but when we look around, it's that those storms unsettle us. And Satan is an enemy that will persistently, with all the animosity and the aggression that he can, try to get inside our hearts and our minds, make accusations about us, that sometimes we buy into. And sometimes, Father, we listen way more to Satan whispering in our ear to the Son, than we do to the Son of God whispering in our heart. 
Forgive us for believing lies. Forgive us for giving an ear to someone who's our enemy. And increase our faith so that we learn to listen to your voice. And all that you say that we are as children of the Most High God, who are greatly loved, forgiven all of our sin, so that we might find rest and peace for our souls. Help us to be as gentle as doves and wise as serpents, that we live in this world according to the mind of Christ and the power of your spirit. And for this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.